When you have a near brush with death, people ask you lots of questions. Some of the questions are existential. Some are philosophical, theological, and some go like this. Have you been watching anything good on TV? One time I was asked that question and I answered, yes, I have watched the entire internet. It felt like anything worth watching on a streaming service I had somehow watched. But the truth is, is when you're right up there on the edge of life, and things are dark for you, and you feel restricted, at least me, I didn't want to give myself to darker stories, so I usually tended towards lighter fare. And there was this one show I watched that was a bit light, and it featured a stand-up comic who I most recently heard on a podcast, and he said the same thing that he said when I watched him on the television program. The stand-up comic was Chris Rock. He's a comedic genius. He made his name in Saturday Night Live. He's lauded by other stand-up comics. And in both places, he was asked about the role, the cultural role of the stand-up comic. And he said, well, we're about the last man standing. He said, we used to live in a world of preachers. Of preachers, you spoke inside into people's lives. They could peer beneath the existence of the human drama and speak something important to it, often about justice or morality or something. But then he said, nobody goes to church anymore. Then he said, we lived in the age of the philosophers where, of course, he could talk about Plato's Symposium or Aristotle or these ancient philosophers or even modern philosophers who met in their great salons where they would discuss publicly in the open spaces their great ideas, their ideas about metaphysics or their ideas about the ethics, or the ethical uh, questions of the day or even aesthetics, the beautiful questions. And then he said, there are no philosophers anymore. And then he said, it's just us. For him, it was a stand-up comic who had the power and the ability, and what's more, the ear of audiences to speak to the truth of our human experience. I thought about what he said long and hard. It made me sad. Because it starts off with the notion that people don't go to church anymore. I thought to myself, I know that we're entering an age of greater secularity, but certainly that's not true. That's not true of my people at Peachtree Christian Church. Look at you, you're here. Some of you are basking quite lovely in the light of the stained glass window. Some of you need to move away from the light a little. That I thought was a funny joke, but whatever. It also made me sad because I don't know if you know it or not, but I am, in fact, a preacher. They took away my job. And then it made me sad because he said that the philosopher no longer exists. And I happen to know quite a few philosophers, people who write books, who teach, who say 
important things that the world ought to be listening to. In fact, my PhD is in philosophical theology, so you could say I have a vested interest there as well, and I got a little bit more sad. But it is true. There was a time not so long ago where American audiences would flock to the television to watch or listen to over the radio public intellectuals who happen to be really well-trained philosophers. And what's more, they actually read their books. But I suppose Chris Rock is not wholly wrong. Stand-up comedy has its ability to really make known what was once unknown or overlooked. And I think the comedic can be quite prophetic indeed. But it made me think that in the age of secularity, stand-up comedy is the best that we have in terms of pop culture prophet work. That's really all we have if we're unwilling to engage deeper traditions. We at least give ourselves an hour to watch and listen to somebody who might tickle our funny bone all the while delivering a message. That night I laid in the, the bed sad, thinking about the state of our affairs, wondering what the future of religion is. We're in a sermon series called Why We Need Religion. We've been asking that question. And given all of these truths, it made me wonder, what is religion? Two weeks ago, I tried to answer it for us. At the root word of the word religion are two words smacked together to create a new one, a neologism at the time, if you will. And that word means to bind to back. Very simply put, religion is a set of practices or beliefs or communities that meet usually in a temple or a house of worship and do things that bind them back to a source, to the source of life, to the giver of life, to the source of human and worldly purpose, I would argue. Religion is all about what binds us back to this giver of source. It's all about a binding, a reconnection, a tethering of oneself to that which is beyond. About 100 years ago, there was a sociologist by the name of Max Weber. And Weber put forward this thesis called the secularization thesis. You see, Weber thought like many of his ilk that the world was really going to be revealed as secular, and that the spiritual, and you could think of transcendence, you can think of magic, you can think of mysticism, you can think of, oh, I don't know, astrology, you could even think about religion and Jesus Christ himself. All of these things and more were kind of like veneers over the real world. And once we started seeing the, the peeling of the veneer through, I don't know, modern rationality and enlightenment thinking and the idea that science is going to answer every pressing human question of the cosmos. Oh, hubris. Oh, hubris the modern age is. Once we really 
found the secrets, we'd be able to peel back that varnish, that, that veneer, and realize what the world really was as brute fact. Just a collection of stuff that have no value, no purpose, or no meaning beyond itself. Let me put it to you plainly. All that is, is all that is, and there is no purpose or giver. It just is. Now, Weber asserted that by now, all of us would be completely and thoroughly secularized. There's one little funny thing about the brilliant Weber's work, is that I'm standing here in a robe in church with you. And I have evidence all over this world. Evidence that suggests that people haven't gone completely secular. You can read the work of Wilfred Cantwell Smith to get a little help with Weber in our time. He is a guy who wrote this book called The Meaning and End of Religion. He comes at writing about religion not from the perspective of a believer, but as a scientist. Religious studies as different from theology, but that those are nuanced arguments and separations. Smith suggests there are really two kinds of religion that are widely out there in the culture. One is essentialist religion. What's essentialist religion? Well, that's pretty simple, actually. It's Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, Islam. Any manner of religious belief systems and communities and houses of worship that have people meet for practices that bind them back in their essence, their purpose is to be binding people back to God and the one who gives purpose for being. So in their essence, they mean to be religion. The other kind of religion it's called functionalist religion. And another thinker by the name of Smith helps us understand that. His name is James K.A. Smith. He is a Christian philosopher, works at Calvin College, and he's got a whole series of books, namely, You Are What You Love. And he argues that liturgies abound everywhere. Now, liturgy, that's like a $10 word. And the stuff that we do in church where we speak back and forth and sing, this is all liturgy. It's work we do together. He says there's the liturgy of the mall. There's the liturgy of the nation state. There's the liturgy of college football. It is true. We have ways of identifying ourselves by our colors against people who are on the other side. They wear other colors. We have our little sayings and traditions. They have their little sayings and traditions. Oh, and what happens when a tech person marries a Georgia person? Their families mourn it as a mixed marriage. Friends, we have liturgies all over the place, and they speak to a functionalist religion Here's what that means. We are religious by nature. Even if we give ourselves to things that just function like a religion. You're sitting in a place that's really special. There's icons all over telling you about the story of Jesus. Later on, some of you will go to a place that's really important to you. It's going to be called the gym. And there, there will be icons. This time, the icon staring at you is your own self. 
here you'll receive the holy meal that builds up your body. There it'll be a protein shake, but receive it, you will. Because we have to bump you up. I am hilarious. I am hilarious. Friends, what all of this thinking leads me to believe, and here's something I want you to take home. Everyone is always and already religious. Why do we need religion? Because you already are. I've never met a non-religious person all the days I've lived. I've met people who say they're not religious. But whether by essence or simple function, most people I've ever talked to straight up are religious. And they've given themselves over to some source, something that gives them purpose, something that animates their life, something that puts their life on a particular path, something that gives them a set of ideals, something that gives them a vision of the good life. There's a bloke, his name is Jocko Willink. He's a former Navy SEAL. I guess you're never a former Navy SEAL. He's a SEAL who gets paid millions of dollars to consult with big time CEOs to tell them leadership stuff like wake up at 4.30 and exercise. I told the nine o'clock service, I keep trying to find that job, but there's no job listing. I'll wake up at 4.30 and go tell people to exercise for millions of dollars, wouldn't you? I shouldn't decry Jocko. He's got a lot of good ideas and a lot of helpful tips for leadership. He's got a series of books I like. We read them to the kids. It's called The Way the Warrior Kid, and it's a fable. And it's about this little boy, Mark, who is weak in body and doesn't have much self-belief or discipline. And his uncle, Jake, shows up for the summer, who's a Navy SEAL who makes him a warrior kid. And in that book, we're reading it to the kids uh, at Christmas time, so we would, we would read our, our Advent calendar, where Max would always say, can I have two chocolates and not one chocolate? He was always negotiating. We're reading a Lent one right now, and he goes, how many chocolates for Lent? And we said, no chocolates. And he goes, okay, I'll have two chocolates. Said he, he doesn't need to go to business school. He knows business. Anyhow, we'd read it, and then we'd read Jocko's book. And Jocko said in one chapter, Jake, Uncle Jake told Mark, you got to have a code. I don't care what it is, but you got to have a code to follow. And he lists the Navy SEAL code, and then he lists the Bushido code of the Samurai Warrior, and then the Ranger code. And he talks about the Knights of Old and the Chivalric codes. And the whole point of it is, you need a code to follow. I don't care what it is, but have one. Isn't that interesting? It seems like the greater code than the code is the fact that you need to have a code. But nevertheless, let's not parse out the religion here. I remember right after September the 11th, 2001, I was watching Oprah. She had a lot of people on the dais, and they were giving their advice for dealing with all this existential tumult and calamity in our world. And at the end of the day, before the credits, here's the wisdom given. Believe in something, I don't care what it is, just believe. 
And right there is the cult of belief. It's a banal religion, to be sure, believing just for the sake of belief. But what she's saying, have some sort of religious belief. Don't call it religion because that makes people feel bad, but, but have one nonetheless. You need one in a time where we're adrift. And who forgets? Who forgets about that great mythologist that didn't just go on Bill Moyers, but the way he described mythology shaped the way George Lucas wrote Star Wars and all kinds of other Hollywood scripts? Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell, when asked about belief, said, it doesn't matter what it is, just follow your bliss. As long as your bliss doesn't hurt anybody, which interestingly enough, again, tells us that tolerance is the real religion there, not bliss. But who wants to parse all that out? We are always already religious. So, pastor, what does this have to do with Jesus in the desert, with the Satan, the devil, Lucifer? Well, I think what you have is a very interesting theological conversation in the desert where two forms of religion are put properly on display. See, a lot of people will tell you that what's going on here is Jesus is about to kick off and inaugurate his earthly ministry. That's true. I would argue that it's a little more deeper and symbolic. He's going to go out to the wilderness before he does his ministry for 40 days and 40 nights and live hand to mouth from God only, which reminds us all about the time that the people of God journeyed in the wilderness before they went into the Holy Land, which is for how many years? Forty. I think Jesus is symbolically telling everybody that He is the very meaning of Israel. He is the very meaning of God's presence in the world going with the people of God. And while out there, He encounters, not the devil, don't think of pitchforks. He encounters Satan, who is like a prosecuting attorney and Satan here is a really good vacation Bible school student. Satan here is a very good Sunday school student. Satan here is a better student than many of you when I've had you in Bible study course. Satan knows the Bible. And he uses it. And Jesus uses it too. And you have two opposed forms of religion. The first one we see is from the mouth of Jesus. And I'm going to call it the religion over the self sort of religion. The religion over the self. Here's what that's about. Well, let me start with what it's not about. So much of religion in our world, even from well-meaning Christians, is about power. If you haven't heard it directly, it's usually told in indirect ways. Like this. Do they preach the truth over there? Does she have the truth? Do they have the truth? I've got the truth in my heart. Do you have the truth in your heart? Truthy, truthy, truth. I don't want to go over there because she don't preach the Bible. Well, who decides who's preaching the Bible, by the way? Oh, I do because I've got the truth. Why do we talk about the truth like it were a set of nuclear codes? 
power that we get to have here in my hip pocket to pull out, use, sight, and run away whenever I want to, as long as I use it against my foe. It's a form of religion. And that form of religion, we're all about possessing it. We're all about owning it. We're all about reaching up and grasping for this truthy truthiness. Remember, Jesus didn't even consider equality with God something to be grasped. Yet we wish to grasp it all the time. Now, the religion that Jesus offers is a very humble one. It's a very transformative one. It lays claim even over his life because it makes him about humility and self-service. In fact, Jesus' religion is about knowledge. It's not about knowledge, possession. It's about wisdom living. It's about being a wisdom seeker. Real religion is not about knowledge possession. Say that. Not about knowledge possession. It's about wisdom seeking. Am I in the wrong church? It's about wisdom seeking. Amen. Hallelujah. Now Satan's got a religion too. And you know what his is about? Self-service. Oh, it doesn't look like that. Because he uses the truth. He uses the Bible. He's got a good bit of Bible memorized. He knows the Greek and Hebrew real well. He can argue around all of us, you see. He knows the truth. Jesus, what's the big deal? Why can't you break your fast? I know you're hungry. I got a little devil's food cake. Would you like some? Well, I know that you're supposed to bring the kingdom of God. Why don't you just take it all now? I'll help you out. Let's expedite this process. No one likes long sermons. No one likes to wait a long time for their Amazon packages. We want to make this thing happen right now, Jesus. Jesus says no. Because he's not about his ends. He's about the ends of God. It's a religion that he's submitting to. It's binding him back to God's ways, not his own ways. When I think about things that bind us, I think about moms. What is a source of life for us that we can speak better of than mom? Each one of us has gestated in a mother's womb. We've passed through the canals of mammalian birth. Each one of us has looked up at a mom and learned they're first what love is. And even if you didn't have a mom or you were overlooked or you were passed on or your mom was not there for you, there was a maternal presence in your life, somebody who loved you. So I look for an analogy to understand this binding of religion. I think of mama. But can we be truthful? Not every mom is a good mom. This past week, Ruby was teaching me about Ring Around the Rosy. Not how the game goes, but what the meaning of the words are. A lot of our folk games and folk stories are dark, church. Did you know that? She's going on telling me about Ring Around the Rosy. I got really interested in studying folklore, so I, 
I was rereading some theory about the Grimm's fairy tales. I'm a nerd. I don't know if you figured that part out. But there is this theory about one of their stories, Hansel and Gretel, if you remember it. There's, there's an axe man, and he's got some kids, and then there's a stepmom, and they lead him into the woods, and gingerbread house, and a witch, and eat the kids. That's the scope of it. Historians and folklorists alike think that there's actually historical antecedents to the story. That in the 1300s, there was, in fact, a famine that swept all of Europe. And it was commonplace for men to lose their wives and to take on another wife for economic reasons. It was commonplace to pass your kid off to grandparents or to sisters or even to just abandon them in the forest because you couldn't feed them. There are even stories of cannibalism. And through all this, folklorists, some historians suggest that probably that's where we get the seeds for Hansel and Gretel. Not every mom's a good mom because that stepmom's a wicked sort in this story. You see, what does Satan bring but nothing but religion filled with biblical truth yet? It's self-serving, so it's not a good binding. It's a rough one. Friends, why do we need religion? We are already religious. The real question that each of us ought to ask this morning is what kind of religion claims our life? Or do we try to claim it instead? You know, because you're a Christian, and that means you came to church today, and you're supposed to be reminded of the fundamental truth that you have a purpose beyond yourself. As I said, I've been watching a lot of movies and TV over my convalescence period. So I get all the narratives about uh, purpose. They're out there aplenty. And there's that one, I hear it. I hear it in song, I see it told, and it's, look out world, here I come. Supposed to be an anthem. Now look out world, because here I come. And it's supposed to embolden yourself to say, look out world, here I come. I'm going to bring change with me. I'm going to bring love with me. I'm going to bring an imprint of something new and something fresh and something life-giving and something that causes others to flourish. Because look out, world, here I come. But when people see you coming, is that how they respond to you? Look out, world, here he comes, here she comes. They're coming to bring a story that would change my life. They're looking to give me a new story. They're looking to give me something to hope in. Or do they look at you and go, oh dear God, here they come again. I got to feel bad about myself. I got to hear that they know my story somehow, that my story is invalidated and they fully understand my experience and my experience doesn't matter. I got to hear them whine about how things are not the way they were when they were kids, when they had power. Now they don't have power, but of course they do have all the power. And I got to hear about it. Oh my God, I got to hear again. 
I got to hear it again that I'm a sinner. My daughter's a sinner. My son's a sinner. We're sinners. I got to hear it again. I'm messed up. I'm broken. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I ought to hate myself. I ought to hate myself. I ought to hate myself. Do you realize that's the tone of religion in a world that is looking for harmony so beautiful and new? Look out, world. Here I come. I'm bringing love with me. That's what happens when you submit to the type of religion that lays claim over your life. So much of the religion that we see is a religion that says, take my photo in the right place. Make me look powerful. Make me look effective. You don't believe the right stuff. You don't live the right way. You're on the wrong side of the line. I don't even have to love you. I'm going to judge you, but I'm not really judging you. It's Jesus, so it's all okay. But if you want a religion that's not weak like that, because that's weak sauce. If you want one that's strong, you want to be strong. Do you want to be strong? Do you want to be strong here? You want to be strong here? You want to be strong? Bend the knee. Bend the knee like Sister Teresa before those who are below you and be below them. Look out, world, here I come.